listening to the Jigs Journal Podcast for Wednesday, June the 21st, and I don't know what to tell you about last night. Very, very disappointing evening for fans of the Toronto Blue Jays. The kind of demoralizing loss that we've seen far too often this year, and um, you know, even with all these games left to play, one would like to think that at some point this team will get its act together and find a way to get over this elusive 500 mark. And uh, there have been some really gruesome statistics to show what happens as they get to the mark. So needless to say, I thought it would be a good idea to continue a very similar theme that we had from yesterday, which is to get special guests who will come on and talk about not only the present-day Blue Jays and their trials and tribulations of what has been a season of ebb and flow, but we're also going to take a look at the minor leagues again and try to understand better some of this amazing talent. Not because you're probably thinking that I'm doing it psychologically to keep you at bay during these moments of frustration, but I think it's important for us to understand the past, the present, as well as the future. And I think the more fans that understand what the Blue Jays are trying to do long-term might help mitigate a little bit of these frustrations that we're experiencing right now. So let's bring out our first guest on today's show, And considering the subject matter, I think he's going to have a lot to say about this. He's a sportscaster and a writer on all things Blue Jays and Raptors, and has an exciting new podcast called South of the Six. Adam Corsair is with us live from Rhode Island. How are you doing today, Adam? Good, man. How about yourself? Doing well, doing well. I appreciate you coming on the show. I want to start by asking you a question that uh, is now becoming almost like gospel. If you're checking Twitter or, or looking at some of the mainstream media in the city of Toronto, why are the Blue Jays struggling so mightily to get back to 500? And why are they being as horribly outscored as they are? I looked at the stat, Adam, and it bothered me. Apparently, in the eight games the Jays have played to get to 500, they've been outscored by 42 runs. That's over five runs per game. Help me understand what's going on and why this team is struggling this badly this year. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um it's pretty difficult to to analyze, actually. Um, obviously, you would like to think that it has nothing to do with the intangibles, that you don't want to think that they have this on their mind when, you know, the pitches are on the mound or the batter's in the box. They don't think, uh, oh, God, we gotta we got to mm. overcome this just to get to 500. But um, I, think, uh, I think the issue is that in these high-pressure situations, um, if I had to guess, that um, they're just coming up short. And uh, normally the pitching – would be there, but um, unfortunately, they're just not coming up in the situation that they would need to be. And uh, unfortunately, also the bats just kind of fall asleep. So, if there's any, if there was uh, any of a week to do it, it would have to be this week because the uh, schedule head does not look encouraging at all. It doesn't, and we've talked about it at length on this show, and I've spoken about it on multiple venues, radio stations, uh, media broadcasts where the July schedule will really make or break the 2017 season for this team. But to your point about the challenge of doing that, typically this team has relied on a leadership group that has consisted of two of three players that haven't even been around for the long haul. If you take away Donaldson's injury time and then factor in Tulo and Martin, we we haven't had that triumvirate together as a unit helping this team move forward. Are you maybe concerned that this leadership group maybe doesn't have the fortitude that we expect them to have? Is it a psychological thing? Because we know these games prove whether you belong in the postseason. And right now, can you honestly tell me that you think this team belongs in the postseason? I'd like to believe that they do, um, and that's just the fan in me. Um, but with the way they're playing and 
let's face it, uh, I mentioned this before, is that these these games in you know mid to late June are just as important as games in July and August. And if they're not coming up in clutch situations now, it's, I'm a little hard-pressed to believe that they're going to be able to do it later in the season. Um, this could just be uh, a matter of them trying to gel back together, you know, as you mentioned, Tulowitzki and Dawson, um recovering mm-hmm. or coming back from their injuries, rather. Um, it could just be an instance of them trying to gel back, but at the end of the day, you kind of got to think that these are professional athletes and they've been here before, and mm-hmm. it might just be a matter of regression. It just might be a matter of uh, father time catching up to them. I'm not sure. We're speaking with Adam Corsair. He's got a new podcast called South of the Six that you're going to want to check out. So, Adam, if you had to hazard a guess, in the event that the Blue Jays keep struggling this badly, and suddenly you and I, let's say, are speaking in August on this show, and uh, the Jays are now 12 games under 500, and the proverbial bottom has fallen out, what is the thing you see happening in terms of a major move that would not surprise you with this team, with the roster being the way it is and the struggles that they've experienced? Um, in terms of the trade deadline, um, I don't necessarily see a full um, explosion with the lineup. I don't. I don't think this this uh, front office is about um, just blowing the whole thing up. But if I had to guess, um, right now the most valuable player on the Jays that would attract um, anybody that wouldn't sacrifice the youth at the same time, I would have to say it would be trading Josh Donaldson. Now I'm not. Um, trying to encourage this sort of move because let's face it, everybody loves Josh Donaldson, but um, that would, that move would seem to make the most sense to me. And considering the nature of this market, I think you'll agree that that move, that decision is something that would have literally a direct impact on everything from fan interest to the type of criticism that might exist. Are you worried about that? Is there a concern that if they made the kind of move, that some people would herald as rebuilding or retooling to become a better team in the future, knowing the market the way it is, do you have some concerns about how fans will handle that? I think the immediate um, reaction would be negative, of course. But if the um, if you can look ahead and check out, it, de- it would actually also depend on the return, right? So if we were able to get some prospects that seem sort of promising or maybe just, just about major league-ready uh, prospects, I think uh, there's a solid fan base out there that would um, be encouraged with it and would, you know, at the end of the day, after they get over it, they would probably think this is the best move for the future, especially if um, we're in a position where we can't really compete for a postseason run this year. Um, There's nothing to say that, depending on the return, that we wouldn't be able to put something together next year as well. Well, let's certainly hope that the front office, especially in trying to distinguish itself from the Alex Anthopoulos regime, ends up making the kind of moves that we know will be scrutinized and might be difficult for some fans to swallow. Adam, tell me about some of the things you've been working on. I know that you have a lot of writing on the web as well as some podcasting efforts. Why don't you tell first-time listeners who are being introduced to you um, what they can look for and where to find you? Sure. Um, I uh, have my own website. It's called southofthesix.com. Uh, the reason why it's called southofthesix.com is because I literally live south of Toronto. Um, I live in Rhode Island and I live in New England, and I'm inundated with Red Sox fans. So, as you can imagine, it's pretty uh, it's pretty terrible <laughs> being a Blue Jays fan, <laughs> being down here. Um, but uh, I, I try to write in the perspective of a of a Blue Jays fan from you know south of the border, and uh, I think it's a, it's something that would be welcoming from uh, my friends up north um, to know that there's someone out there down south of the border that's with you guys and that has been with you guys throughout the struggles. And um, 
so you can find me at south of the um, you can look up the podcast just go to itunes type in south of the six and six is spelled six ix and uh, you can find me on twitter at a corsair 21 that's at a c o r s a i r the numbers two and one his name is adam corsair i appreciate you joining us today and we look forward to having you on as a guest in the future take care adam Next on the show, I'm thrilled to have with us an award-winning baseball writer, statistician, and the scoring manager for the Toronto Blue Jays organization. Her name is Alexis Brudniki. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Given the nature of the work that you do and your experience in this field, I'm wondering how often does anything really surprise you in this game? Like, I mean, things that you kind of watch and see and then you end up saying, wow, this is really highly unusual for a game that's been around for over a century. Is there anything that surprises you anymore? Oh, definitely, yeah. There are surprises all the time. I mean, I see hundreds of games a year, so um, there's always something new to be taken out of it. Uh, Even just the other day, last night, actually, the days are all blurring together, but at the Midwest League um, All-Star game, the MVP of the game hit a home run, and at first base, he switched jerseys with his first base coach um, as he was rounding the bases. So, uh, And he was batting out of order, so there was a lot of confusion about what was happening. Um, that is definitely not something I have seen before, and I feel like it's kind of – that's something that I love about baseball. Just It can happen anytime, anywhere, any day. You can see something new. That That really is, I think, a part of the game which is unique. Um, compared to, let's say, hockey or basketball or football. Those games seem to be somewhat, because they're time-based games, I guess you could say, Alexis, a lot of linear things happen. In baseball, even though it's a very analytical game in that you have three outs to work with per inning and you can put everything on a certain level of mathematics, it's amazing how many organic things happen that you don't see coming. And some of them can become quite controversial, as we've seen with this team over the last few years. Yeah, I mean, baseball brings something new to the table every single day, I think. Um, for I know a lot of people consider it boring, but uh, I think it's quite fascinating. Like, there's always something going on. There's always something to watch, um, always someone to wonder kind of what they're thinking about. And in the same vein, in comparison to, you know, hockey or soccer, I mean, every arena to me kind of looks the same, but every ballpark um, has – completely unique entities and offer something different so i i mean baseball is clearly my number one sport um but i think that it brings something new to the table every every place and every day now it's interesting you mentioned baseball stadiums i'm curious how many different baseball stadiums have you been to and that you're familiar with across both the minor and major league level personally uh, I've been to about 115 stadiums. I've been to all the major league stadiums. Um, I've been to all of the spring training stadiums in Florida and Arizona. Uh, I've been to all of the stadiums, all the professional stadiums in Australia. Um, I've been to Japan. I've seen the Tokyo Dome, uh, and I've been to stadiums in every every league of the of the minors as well. That that's absolutely astonishing, especially to someone who's been to um maybe 105 less different stadiums than you in your life. <laughs> and uh I would imagine yes, that that's I, almost, I make it that's a point. Like a badge of honor, isn't it? 
yeah, I, I guess I didn't really think about it until um, a friend of mine who works at Baseball America, Josh Norris, we were kind of compiling a list to see who had been to more and which ones we had both been to. Um, and I think for the end of the year, he's putting together a best ballpark list. Um, so I didn't even realize how many it was until we actually kind of wrote them all down and figured it out. I'm speaking with Alexis Brudnicki. She's a baseball writer and a scoring manager for the Toronto Blue Jays organization. Now, Alexis, do you have any favorites? Are there any that you can think of that really stick out in your mind as being particularly unique or indelible with your experiences? Oh, yeah, 100%. I really love um, the stadium in El Paso. It's the home of the El Paso Chihuahuas. Um, It opened just a couple years ago, and they kind of took the best of a whole bunch of great minor league stadiums and put it into one place, and it's on the border to Mexico, and it has the Franklin Mountains in the... Mm -hmm in the background um it has a bullpen that for the opposing team that's right on the sidewalk so people can kind of walk by and see the opposing pitcher warming up and heckle or say whatever they want to say to that guy um it has a lot of unique qualities great food like they just have done everything that they can to to make that great and another san diego padres affiliate fort wayne uh has a beautiful ballpark i just got there for the first time uh, a couple weeks ago, and it is awesome. They have rooftop seating like Wrigley. They have a, a batter's eye with a group seating area inside of it. Um, they have all kinds of unique things there, too, and they're kind of named um, on a play of Johnny Appleseed. And so they have a lot of food wise, a lot of kind of apple, really different and really good to eat. Um, and <laughs> I think, but Major League Ballparks, I kind of I like the old ones with some history. I like Wrigley Field. I like Fenway. The new ones, I really love PNC Park in Pittsburgh. Um, AT&T in San Francisco is beautiful. Um, they all have a lot of charm and uniqueness to them and a lot to offer. But, uh, yeah, I would put those definitely at the top of my list. That's really fascinating because I'm really wondering your opinion on something that Blue Jays fans do talk about amongst themselves and you hear murmurs about this. It doesn't get talked a lot at the higher levels or in mainstream media, but there's a significant number of fans who believe that the Sky Dome, or shall we say the Rogers Center, to be clear, um, when the Sky Dome was first constructed, it was such a powerful novelty. And now, because we've gone through another era around the mid to late 90s where we've seen the ascent of these more mobile and attractive uh, stadiums designed more to accommodate fans. What's your perception of the Rogers Center today? Do you think that given its age, it's almost 30 years old, that maybe it's time to consider a new stadium here in Toronto? Uh, I mean, I think that would be really, really hard to do. And I, I mean, I've been at every, every Blue Jays game bar a couple of home games when I had to attend other functions for the last, eight seasons um, and then even more in between, but every single one over that time. And I know that people kind of, they see the new stadiums and the wonder that they bring and the sites that they have. Uh, but the Rogers Center is really, it's amazing in itself just to think about the technology that they they took a chance on, you know, 30 years ago to, to even kind of have that idea um, and, 
find the architects who are willing to to be able to put that together. I think it's amazing. I think, you know, seeing the roof open and close, especially now that it's had a $10 million upgrade in the last three years, um, and it does it a lot more quickly and a lot more reliably, um, I think it's kind of amazing. I understand, you know, that people are kind of sick of it, but I don't mind it. I don't hate it. I know a lot of people do, but I don't. I'm inclined to agree with you in that if we start comparing the Rogers Center to many of the other more modern parks, especially the ones constructed in the last, say, 5 to 15 years, there is a tendency to kind of look, um, you know, beyond the, the border and, and, and over the border and, look and, and see some of these innovations and think, man, why don't we have that? I mean, we're the fourth largest city in North America. We're a huge market. Uh, ownership spends over $160 million on this baseball club, shouldn't have that stadium befitting that novelty. But I think there's a lot to be said. Wouldn't you agree with with a, a granted retro-looking stadium that has the facilitation to host over 45,000 people? And let's face it, when this team is doing well in August and September, it's an amazing place to be, especially given the history for those of us who remember the glory years and those back-to-back World Series championships. Yeah, I think it just has to kind of be looked at in a different light. If we were coming to visit the stadium once a year, like we would go see other stadiums in other cities, you know, what kind of a wonder would it be? And I know I've brought people to the stadium for the first time and they think it's phenomenal. It has a hotel in the outfield. How cool is that? You can watch a game from a hotel room. It has a roof that opens and closes. It's, you can see the CN Tower from the ground. It offers that view. I think you just kind of have to take a step back. And, and I obviously there are always going to be people who hate it. There are probably people who love it, I hope. Um, but just having people come in and see it for the first time gives a totally unique perspective. And I think probably – the best one that that we could have. And I think it's wonderful that you've reminded people because there are no doubt listeners who are appreciating your words and saying to themselves, you know, it's easy to take for granted something you've you've become used to. But even after close to 30 years, there's no doubting what kind of electricity is in this stadium when the Blue Jays are competing and headed towards the postseason, which we hope will happen this year. Um, Alex, why don't you tell first-time listeners and, and those who are experiencing your involvement with our show for the very first time, tell them what you're up to and what they can do to learn more about your contribution to the Blue Jays and some of the things that you're working on on the web. Uh, so for the Blue Jays, uh, everything that I do, you can see during home games up on all of the, the boards in the stadium. Kind of anything that is uh, a letter or number related that is not marketing uh, comes from from my computer with help from our graphics crew, of course, who built the backgrounds. I just put in the letters and numbers. Um, other than that, Baseball America has my latest pieces on the Midwest League Home Run Derby in which Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was phenomenal and didn't even win. Um, and the Midwest League Home Run or uh, All-Star Game last night, which was had a few spectacles of its own, like I mentioned. And then uh, at CanadianBaseballNetwork.com, I also have some pieces coming up on some players who uh, were drafted, um, a Canadian player who's retiring, and then the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame inductions, which will take place on Saturday. That's fantastic stuff. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, because I know that there are listeners who are screaming right now, ask her to talk about Vladimir Guerrero Jr. How can you sum up what fans can expect from this 
prospect and, and how soon you see him joining the big club one day? Well, so far, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is everything that everyone wants him to be and a little bit more. Um, at the Home Run Derby, he put on a show. Um, he was hitting balls that, uh, you know, I don't think that they will ever see again. Uh, and, and, again, like I mentioned, he didn't win. Carlos Rincon won, and Carlos is 19. Um, Vlad Jr. is 18 years old. He did show a little bit of a different side in the Home Run Derby. He didn't wear batting gloves. Like his dad, during most games for the Lansing Gloves Nuts, he does wear batting gloves, uh, much to the dismay of some people I know out there who are hoping he's exactly his father. Uh, he has a really violent swing, but again, he's not hes not like that in games as much. Um, but he looks a lot like his dad, who is being inducted into the Canadian on Saturday and who should be inducted into Cooperstown next year, uh, which is really, really exciting. And I think... It actually is really great for him in the Blue Jays system to have the competition he's had everywhere along the way. He makes baseball fun. He makes it competitive. He competes with his teammates last year in Bluefield. He and Bradley Jones were constantly going back and forth um, and trying to do better than one another. In Lansing this year, he and Bo Bichette are doing the exact same thing. Um, and it's fun. It's competitive. And, you know, he could be, he could be ready soon, but not, not immediately. That's for sure. She is an award-winning baseball writer, statistician, and the scoring manager for the Toronto Blue Jays organization. Be sure to follow Alexis Brudnicki. Thanks for joining the show today. Thanks for having me. So now this is the part of the show where we move on to our final guest. He's a writer and contributor with our own Jays journal. Brendan Panikar is on the show. Brendan, thanks for joining today. Hey, Ari. I'm glad we were finally able to connect, and it's uh, an honor to be on the show with you today. I appreciate that. And you know you will be on the show often because these days we have so much to talk about. I've already covered a lot of cool things with uh, today's show in particular, talking about the minor leagues, talking about the stadium, talking about philosophically the game itself and what the Blue Jays are doing. But now I've just been informed that John Gibbons has really taken the lineup and shaken it up significantly. And you and I were laughing about that yesterday because I tweeted something to the effect of how Gibby is due for some kind of shakeup. Looks like we've got Jose Bautista leading off, Dwight Smith Jr. hitting second, Donaldson in third, and Justin Smoke hitting ahead of Kendris Morales. What are your thoughts about these changes right now? Yeah, I mean, in my piece that I wrote that went out this morning, um, I made the case for either Jose Bautista or Russell Martin hitting leadoff. I mean, Martin is almost near 380 with his OBP, so... Even though it's not very conventional to have a catcher up there, especially somebody with not a lot of speed, um, I understand the rationale for not having him up there. But bang on with Jose Bautista. I mean, I, have, I settled on him being in the leadoff spot. The, my original reaction is why even move Josh Donaldson from the two spot? He's basically hit there his entire Blue Jay career, except for the first few weeks in 2015 when he was hitting fifth behind uh, Encarnacion and Bautista. So I don't really understand the rationale for putting Donaldson third because that is more old school thinking, having your best hitter third, whereas the new school way of thinking, put your best hitter second after your leadoff guy gets more at bats, comes up more often uh, in later innings with uh, people on base. So uh, I don't really understand why Donaldson goes third. Perhaps maybe it is to prevent Smoke from batting third to perhaps, I guess, maybe take a little bit of pressure off of him. Mm. I don't think it would have mattered very much uh, because also in my piece, I was hoping that Morales would hit either cleanup or 
fourth, and then Smoke third or fourth. Um, but Smoke sit in the cleanup spot uh, earlier this year with all those injuries. Uh, one of the games he was in the cleanup spot was actually uh, one of the games in St. Louis, one of the ones that I was at, and it was pretty pretty ugly, ugly batting lineup that day all, after all the injuries. But that's my best guess, just so Smoke doesn't have to bat third or and uh, have any additional pressures on him. Not that that should matter very much. Uh, and I don't think it would affect Justin Smoke very much, but uh, I guess that's in uh, Gibby's line of thinking. Well, that's interesting that you bring up, Brendan, the notion of old school versus new school. How much stock do you place into the notion of protection? Because once upon a time in baseball, that was how lineups seemed to be constructed, trying to understand who's hitting behind you, so that way if you've got a hitter who's particularly vulnerable to pitchers taking advantage of, let's say, exploiting an inside pitch or having poor plate coverage, you'd usually get a strong hitter behind you. How much credence do you give to maybe the mentality from Gibbons that the reason he's put Donaldson behind Smith is because it's his way of saying, give Dwight a chance to hit some pitches over the plate? Yeah, I mean, I always, even with the new school stats, like uh, weighted runs create a plus um, and and uh, all that kind of stuff, all those fancy stats that everybody's starting to write about these days to, uh, I guess, kind of make themselves probably seem smarter than they are, but it's also a good way of evaluating talent these days. Um, I do believe in the, uh, the concept and the thought of lineup protection. I always try to have a balance of new school and old school because obviously – People who are very heavy into the new school uh, way of thinking discredit the human element, but there's, you're playing with humans. You're not playing with robots. There's always going to be the human yeah. element involved in a game of baseball. And, and yeah, I mean, I'm hoping uh, probably one of the lines of thinking is uh, Smith uh, sandwiched in between Bautista and in between Donaldson. If Smith gets on base, there's an element of speed right at the top of the lineup. Donaldson's obviously a great OBP guy, a uh, guy who hits a lot of doubles, a lot of extra base hits that even if Smith was to take a walk or get a single or a bump base hit, whatever, uh, that he could go from first to third on a double or even first to home on a double. So maybe just to have that element of speed, Smith gets a little bit more uh, balls to hit. And then the other thing, uh, being on that lineup protection with Donaldson batting ahead of Justin Smoke, uh, especially with the way Smoke has won the back this year, it's just like, well, who are you going to pitch to? Are you going to pitch to this guy who's having a career year? Are you going to pitch to Donaldson? So then they have an interesting um, uh, way of thinking of who they're going to attack. Are you going to attack Smoke? Are you going to attack Donaldson? And then even Morales behind him, too. Uh, Morales hasn't uh, gotten hot for stretches. Mm-hmm. He's just been really consistent all season long, which is nice. Um, so those three, four, five, I can see pitchers having a tough time navigating their way through uh, the lineup. And then, as we said, uh, with Dwight Smith batting uh, in front of Josh Donaldson, hopefully gets him more pitches to hit, and he takes advantage and gets on base. I'm talking to Brendan Panikar of Jay's Journal, writer and contributor. You can find him at jaysjournal.com. Now, Brendan, I see that Troy Tulowitzki is not in the lineup, and without even hazarding a guess as to why, whether it's Gibby simply giving him a maintenance day or not, it essentially means that fans this evening will, will be witnessing a Blue Jays lineup where Ryan Gones... Darwin Barney, and Luke Maley will be hitting 7, 8, and 9. Now, I'm sure I don't need to tell you how, what, what's the word that we want to use to describe it? Impotent. Black that hole. third of the lineup is. Lackluster might be better, I think, than impotent. Yeah, impotent sounds a little too, Yeah, it sounds a little too dramatic. And um, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, basically, here we are talking about the top and middle of the order, but consistently throughout this year, the bottom third of the Blue Jays lineup has been nothing more than a barren wasteland of productivity 
for this team. How concerned you about that? Yeah, I mean, I think what we saw in 2015 and the parts of the season where the Blue Jays are going well uh, for the majority of 2016 and even the flashes that we saw this year, uh, even with all the bench players and replacements in, is the bottom of the line. When the Blue Jays score a lot of runs and they're winning ball games, the bottom of the lineup gets on base. Uh, and that's no, that's no secret. That pretty much goes for any team. But that year when the Blue Jays scored all those runs, in 2015, the bottom of the order was always the one to get innings started, uh, always got on base, wreaked havoc on the base paths for the big boys coming up. Uh, so when you have a bottom three of Goins, Barney, and Luke Maley, all who are well below league average in the weighted runs created plus department, uh, it's a little worrisome. I mean, you got to hope that maybe uh, just even get on base once in your three, four at-bats in the game just to see if you can get something started. But I wouldn't expect too much. I'm kind of surprised that uh, John Gibbons is not giving um, or is is giving Russell Martin the day off on the same day he's giving Tulo the day off, especially because tomorrow's a day game. It's going to be hot, and Russell Martin's going to catch again. Uh, so I thought maybe they'd give him uh, give him the night off tomorrow instead and then put Tulo back in the lineup there. But without Martin and or Tulo in that lineup, it's a pretty, pretty bare bottom third after Steve Pierce. Well, you've got no Tulowitzki, you've got um, no Martin, and you've got no Pilar. You've got 12 players actively sitting on 10 and 60-day DLs. Looking at this just on a topographical level is, is, is intimidating. It's daunting for a Blue Jays fan to accept that this kind of lineup is basically being issued a challenge, I think you'll agree, on Gibbons, which is go out there and try to get important road wins as we rest up and get ready for what will be the most grueling part of the schedule. Is that how fans should internalize these decisions to sit three key players and have this kind of lineup uh, against a, a very tough Rangers team? I just think you got to win every game as possible just before the schedule gets hard, as you alluded to. I'm not necessarily in favor of giving two of their better players a day off uh, in, mm. the, in the same night, uh, especially because they, they need to take advantage. I mean, Tyson Ross, they've only played him once before. Uh, but he's still a good pitcher when he's healthy um, and whatnot. So you got to rack up as many wins as possible between now and next week's homestand with starts because um, after they're done with Kansas City on the weekend, and Kansas City's actually gotten a little bit better and are playing better baseball as of late, uh, if you win two of the next games or even, I guess, now one of two against Texas, you got to take two or three against Kansas City. If you don't, you go back into that uh, homestand replay the Orioles, the Red Sox, you go on a three-game uh, road trip to New York over the 4th of July and then finish off at home in a four-game series against the MLB's best team, the Houston Astros, or second-best team behind Colorado. Uh, it's a daunting finish. They really got to take as many wins as possible uh, before the uh, next homestand. No doubt. And I certainly look forward to having you on the show as a recurring guest, giving us this fantastic insight into what the future holds for the Toronto Blue Jays. He is Brendan Panikar. You can find all of his great work on jaysjournal.com. Be sure to check out his latest article. Brendan, thanks for coming on the show today. Ari, of course. I'll come on anytime you need me, man. Lovely. Lovely.